the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Welcome back. Hello. Um if you haven't listened to episode 60 yet, then go away and do so. This is part 2 of the discussion from last week. Uh and we welcome back Dr. Katie Muth. Hello. Um you will if you have listened to last week's episode, you will know that we spoke about uh the self-help industry and we are carrying on that discussion focusing instead on multi-level marketing MLMs uh pyramid or ponzi schemes and its connection to capitalism nation state utopias etc etc is does that seem yeah what like what we do where do we want to start should we begin with what is an MLM yeah that seems like and a good how do they <laughs> relate to self help yeah i think that's a good place to start yeah yeah so there's an historical relationship between mlms which are multi-level marketing schemes not to be confused with pyramid schemes or ponzi schemes for reasons that you know, in, in in a very particular way that i'll describe in a minute and self help which is to say that a lot of these authors that we were talking about last week have some involvement in some kind of multi-level marketing scheme or in in some cases some self-help authors have a relationship with things that have been judged pyramid schemes that's very rare um but it has happened um not with any of the people we were discussing explicitly last week um but with some kind of lesser known figures in the kind of human potential movement personal development world Um so there's historically a kind of relationship between these two industries where people have either worked in some kind of direct marketing, sales or multi-level marketing or network marketing prior to becoming purveyors of personal development literature or workshops or what have you or people go from, you know, the kind of the, the other direction but they're closely aligned literally within the same actors in many cases. Um there's a kind of exchange between the two. So a multi-level marketing scheme is a kind of way of selling goods where you sell um kind of directly like via individual independent contractors of sorts um to the public. You sell goods and and, and you earlier had pulled up a a nice definition from a consumer protection bureau that gave the kind of legal language because there's very specific legal language that defines um a legal multi-level marketing business from an illegal uh pyramid scheme so a pyramid scheme is a fraudulent scheme which sometimes looks very similar to a multi-level marketing uh company or business model and i thought that language was was helpful and kind of getting the the kind of legalese there's a legal definition set by um precedent within the US courts 
from we'll put this the link to this page in the comments this is uh the south dakota consumer protection uh web page so office of the attorney general um and defines multi-level marketing or network marketing as individuals selling products to the public often by word of mouth and direct sales the main idea behind the mlm multi-level marketing strategy is to promote maximum number of distributors for the product and exponentially increase the sales force the promoters get commission on the sale of the product as well as compensation for sales their recruits make thus the compensation plan in multi-level marketing is structured such that commission is paid to individuals at multiple levels when a single sale is made and commission depends on the total volume of sales generated pyramid schemes are however fraudulent schemes disguised as an mlm strategy the difference between a pyramid scheme and a lawful mlm program is that there is no real product that is sold in a pyramid scheme participants attempt to make money solely by recruiting new participants into the program the hallmark of these schemes is the promise of sky high returns in a short period of time for doing nothing other than handing over your money and getting others to do the same yeah so i think that language is helpful because it it details just kind of or it demonstrates just kind of how very careful the legal definition that draws a line between legal MLMs and illegal Ponzi schemes or pyramid schemes is and it's specifically whether the business model can be said to depend on purely on recruiting people or whether it depends on selling a product where the profits from that product are distributed amongst members at multiple levels yeah and that really matters. Yes. <laughs> that specific difference. And and in other words the the pyramid scheme is seen as fraudulent because you are asked to provide money and find other people to provide money mm-hmm. and promises are made that that money will yield investment returns when it, mm-hmm. when it can't and it won't and that money typically gets swallowed by the fraudulent owners of pyramid mm-hmm. schemes and legal pyramid schemes uh, for multi-level marketing the idea is that you are putting in labor in in, yes. in selling something yes and it's not that you are getting money uh, out of nothing supposedly the idea is that you are getting money which is commission based on the labor you put in for your sales and it's a product that and you're actually product selling, that you're selling. And, it, and it's crucial that there's a product now how yes. product gets defined yeah is really messy yeah um, you mm. can define lots of things as a product but it's crucial that there's a product which is being sold rather than mere hope or chance yes, yes. Um, is is what what matters the most here so you gave an example of an illegal scheme in mm. India that yes. I think is really fascinating also that I, I yeah so this is uh, it it was a, a major scandal that uh, enveloped the state government in the state of West Bengal uh, it's uh, the group is called the Sharoda group um, which was uh, a Ponzi scheme and a pyramid scheme uh, in total the group collected around 200 to 300 billion Indian rupees converts to about four to six billion US dollars from over 1.7 million depositors before it collapsed uh, the the reason why it enveloped the, the government uh, is that lots of government ministers uh, high-level party officials for the from the ruling party 
were personally and financially involved in the in the the in this group. Uh, there were kickbacks from from the group to various government officials, and because the involvement of the government of government officials was uh, a sort of an open secret, a lot of the low level. Uh, um, staff I guess would be the word, word to describe them uh, the the people who took it upon themselves to try to find other investors in order to, to build the scheme they were convinced themselves in many cases and managed to convince other people that this was all happening with the government's blessing in, all, in other words it couldn't collapse on itself because the government was underwriting the risk it would be underwritten way. by the government yeah and of course it wasn't it was never going to be and the whole thing collapsed huge numbers of people lost huge amounts of money uh, sometimes people committed suicide uh, especially a lot of the people who'd uh, who were working for the scheme as it were mm-hmm. uh, at, at mid levels lower levels who were who thought they were collecting money in in good faith and and of course when the scheme collapsed the the investors went to them. They didn't go to to the to the upper levels. Um, so it was it was a major major issue. Yeah, and I think it's very easy to look at something like that and see what's wrong with that scenario, yeah. right? Yeah. And we can yeah. think of examples in the United States that maybe sound yeah to a greater or lesser extent very yeah. similar to yeah. the one you just described. But most recently, it's been a story about um, Nexium, right, Nexium. which has been in the news and because of the convictions recently. And so one of the things that we were talking about as we were preparing for this conversation was what, you know, these, these are clear examples. And Nexium's even worse because it's like, it's clear what's wrong with this. It's, yes. it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not even like, well, it's, it's being prosecuted as a, as a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme. It's literally a kind of sex, I mean... There's kind of abuse of, of kind of... Do you want to give a quick introduction in case yeah, people haven't heard yeah. the Nixium story? Yeah. Um, so this is uh, a particularly sad... I think it's um, pretty sad, yeah. Um, troubling. Troubling. Troubling, troubling for sure. Uh, story. It's an American multi-level marketing company. That That's how they describe themselves. Mm-hmm. It has been described as a cult. It has been described as a pyramid scheme. It people have now been convicted of uh, uh, sexual abuse. Uh, Keith Ranier is mm-hmm. one of the one of the people who set it up, and the other high profile person involved uh, was the uh, is that Alison Mack, um, and both of them have now been convicted uh, of. Uh, for their involvement uh, in the story and it's you know I, I, I mentioned the, the, the shower the scheme before that had its own sexual scandal uh, oh. as well mm-hmm. uh, it's one of the many ways in which pyramid schemes in particular have a kind of cultish aspect to it is through particularly abuse of sexual practices yeah. that seems to be a, a running pattern uh, across multiple examples and this goes back to some of the like i think what was one of the early convictions of like like well attempts to prosecute um a, a business 
on the basis of it having been a, a pyramid scheme, which was mind dynamics. And yeah. there's um, a kind of film from called Circle of Power from 1981, I believe, kind of yeah. based off a real-life story, The Pit, a yeah. novelistic kind of real, like, you know, a true story novelistic adaptation about mind dynamics, which is one of those things that's kind of like this abusive camp that you go away to be, like, beaten down, and it is violent, and it is, you know, there are people in cages, and and these stories all come from what was a, a an actual place, um, and an actual kind of camp where, mm. where, again, there's also an abusive element, um, a sexually abusive element, yeah. um, not just physical abuse, mm. uh, kind of verbal abuse, sexual abuse, it all goes hand in hand. It's very easy to see why these things are kind of terrifying yeah. and ominous and scary, right? Um, sex cult is, that seems good. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I think one of the questions that we've been kind of debating as we discuss these issues is what makes the rest of it also ominous? Is it just like kind of association or near association with sex cults? <laughs> is it the near association with abuse mm -hmm. or is there something else underneath the kind of structure of a multi-level marketing mm -hmm. company or a kind of leadership uh, development seminar mm -hmm. that is itself inherently uncomfortable, unhealthy, mm -hmm. ominous? What is it? I think abuse is clear, mm -hmm. but what about those? What about those instances which seem more innocuous? I think, for me, partly it is on a very simple level. There's an element of exploitation through false promises, which is something that connects to the to the self help uh, stuff we looked at last week, uh, where with the pyramid scheme you are promising people that an an X percent rate of in the, in the investment which isn't sustainable with multi-level marketing you are often making promises that people will make money sums of money that they want or rather the amount of time and money that you have to invest before you see any return is is not feasible um, so that's part of the issue but I think Hannah had a a, a wider ranging point uh, about why these institutions companies are particularly problematic it feels like a really broad spectrum so there's yeah. a sort of a kind of extreme kind of a, quite terrifying or uncomfortable or distressing or troubling examples yeah. that are the sex yeah. cult type mm -hmm. examples mm -hmm. there's other examples that that aren't that are not classified as mm -hmm. as MLMs yeah. so if you're classified for example as a church yeah you're treated quite differently, but there are a number of organizations that are classified as churches that behave in a similar way, that create tiers of membership in whether it's work or or effort or kind of uh, personal suffering mm. that you impose on yourself or money, mm. whatever it is, mm -hmm. that there are organizations that aren't aren't and you know we we can probably think of names of those i won't yeah. say any the, on you, you can also you can also think of um third sector voluntary organizations yeah. that work yeah. on that maybe they're not they they don't exist in order to make individual people money yeah. in the way mlms do but they work structurally in a similar way yeah it, you have to sell x number of 
the products you have to find y number of people who will also sell x number of the products yeah. Yeah. in order to earn money for the organization yeah or you have um more either existential or religious or mm. like pseudo religious sort of like yeah you know liberal trials and tribulations going in working in the jungle and helping you know former show elephants yes. you know rehabilitate yeah. themselves that, that kind of of investment whether it's labor or spiritual pseudo spiritual work or spiritual work yes. and there's and certain exercise regimes that are like boot campy yeah oh yeah mm. you know it promising and there's there's one in particular that often uses um uh, veterans with disabilities, mm-hmm. often mm-hmm. veterans who are amputees, or you know, men who are extremely good at what they do. They're mm-hmm. former snipers, mm-hmm. or they're you know, they they're mm-hmm. experts at being yeah. physically fit, yeah. and are now disabled. And yeah. so there's a, but all of these these types of organizations operate on the premise that you, in the future, if you put in whatever it is, work or money mm-hmm. or a combination of the two, or some sort of like spiritual trial or tribulation and you undergo this experience you come out of it at mm. the end mm. like a more like perfect version of yourself yeah. and that perfect version of yourself at the end is quite a utopian yeah. idea and so th- it's a spectrum really mm-hmm. in terms of if it's just exercise and becoming physically fit or if it's you know volunteerism in the rainforest in Costa Rica mm. or whether it's joining a sex cult and going on leadership yeah. leadership weekends where you're walking around naked in the snow for a weekend you know it, or, or, or even you know just really small scale petty sometimes ridiculous things about whatsapp messages that you have to send to 10 people by friday and if you oh, do then yeah, you'll get chain messages. You, you know chain messages yeah. chain letters they're all they all follow the same logic right that if you do this and send it to x number of people and x those x each of those people then send it to x number of people yeah. together you will create some kind of an effect that as you say will help shape you mm-hmm. either through sort of supernatural intervention or through monetary the gain accumulation of accumulation of wealth will shape you into a better version of yourself yeah and and whether it's you know as we made very clear that the mlms and pyramid schemes are very different and absolutely mm-hmm. not the same thing but partly one similarity they have is that they are the in some senses the product that that is being sold to you mm-hmm. is this future better version of yourself mm-hmm. whether it's whether it's you except richer or you except fitter mm-hmm. or you with more blessings from the lord or you with better makeup you with better makeup or you you know with, with more lots benefits. of good sex in, mm-hmm. a, in the sex cult you know whatever it might be <laughs> is it, the this promise and therefore injunction that you you can and therefore need to constantly improve yourself. Yeah. I mean, which is always, you know, one one point to make about this that's, you know, pretty obvious is that that's not something that's anybody's to sell to you, right? Your future self isn't an actual thing. You can't be sold. My literal mind needs to point <laughs> that out. But this this is most distilled in some of the, the stuff that brings together um, kind of personal development literature and 
the kind of scheme of a kind of multi-level organization where there's a recruitment element and you start to see the kind of the kind of first of all the importance of being sold this ephemeral sense of a future better self and how that works in a kind of very abstract sense right and these you know um excellence success Mm-hmm. leadership yeah. weekends mm-hmm. seminars what have you however whatever they're called um in their various guises and and then also the the relationship between like that kind of way of thinking and that product and recruitment and the kind of bringing in of an ever broader number of people below you in mm-hmm. some sense and in multi-level marketing this gets really blurry for me um, because I have not I have not participated in any kind of multi-level marketing as a business right Mm -hmm. but I have it has been present in my life as long as I can remember Mm -hmm. right there was Tupperware there was there was a clothing one that I can't remember the name of there was Avon there was Mary Kay there was Pampered Chef there you know these companies have been around Mm -hmm. in my family like in very immediately and far flung since I remember you know I Tupperware yeah Yeah. and this is this is again following on from the self-help discussion last last week is another thing that isn't by no means unique to these two examples but particularly characterizes American capitalism and Indian capitalism Mm -hmm. um in the same way that it's it's you as far back as you can remember you it, it is something that you're familiar with uh, something similar to me maybe not quite as far back it's perhaps a, a slightly more recent phenomenon in India but you know I have family members who are who are actively involved in uh, uh, work through mm-hmm. various uh, high profile globalized multi-level marketing companies and of all of the various things that can be said about it, one of the things that immediately springs to mind is the gendered nature of it. Yeah. The, the, the products that are sold typically are Tupperware, makeup, household products, and overwhelmingly, certainly in India, and I'm, I'm guessing it's similar in, in America, it, it, it is a business that is uh, effectively run by women. Uh, often, often yeah. the, the the people at the top are, are usually powerful rich men. Uh, In some cases, not all. No, yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's there is a, a a sense, certainly in in terms of my perception, that it is presented as a thing that you can do on the side. Yes. Of your of your main profession. Yes. And eventually, you will make up make so much money that you will won't have to have your main profession anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, my emotional relationship to this is pretty complicated because I remember these events when yeah. I was young as really positive experiences, where mm-hmm. someone's having a, you know, pampered chef party or whatever, and there's food, mm-hmm. and all my favorite aunts yeah. are there, and like we're all hanging out, and there's lots yeah. of food, yeah. and we're hanging out and talking. Yeah. And I also remember just like the kind of positivity of the selling experience itself yeah. as a kind of, you know, this for me just 
in memory is, is, is a happy, these are happy events. And these are events where, where the women in my life felt empowered and felt that they were doing, you know, things not just to better themselves, but actually to contribute to a kind of wider sense of well-being and facility your in your, in this case, your kitchen, um, you, um, kind of better at kitchening, but also entering Mm -hmm. that they're entering a world that at least in certain communities, is less accessible mm. to women, and particularly to women who are raising mm. children, mm. women who also have yeah. caring responsibilities, that a kind of entry to an entrepreneurial world is, this offers mm. that without compromising the caring responsibilities mm. that they maintain as well. That, that's really fascinating because for me it is, that's what makes it so much more insidious because so if I think back I many years ago I had a job uh, selling computers in, in PC world right it was it was a it was an awful job for reasons that we don't need to go into now but there was a, a clear thing where I was selling my labor yeah as one does in capitalism yeah and I was making a little bit of money the people I was selling my labor to was making much more money but the only thing I was giving them was my labor. Yeah. Right? My social network, my friends, my family, the the community that sustained me was not for sale. Yeah. Except I think in MLMs it is. I'm just listening to you, the, the positive the positive experiences that you were narrating. Yeah. Isn't that positivity being hijacked? in order to, uh, like all capitalism, make more money, make more money for people at the top and a little bit less, a little bit of money for people who are doing the selling. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, well, I don't want to say this is only a thing that happens in MLMs, certainly, right? Like I have all kinds of positive experience or positive feelings associated with Starbucks and I know how Starbucks is designed specifically to elicit all the positive feelings that I have yes. about it yes. and I don't care because I yes. want my coffee to taste yes. the same in yes. Glasgow and in Madrid. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yes. care. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, it's not, it's not just that it, it's hijacking positive feelings or a feeling of kind of neighborliness in mm. this case, the Starbucks yeah. kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, but it's that in some way it also functions like a kind of economy that should be a gift economy, I think. Yes. Where, and it acts like a gift economy. Yeah. That, you know, if you see people, um, I was listening to a really interesting interview with someone who had had been in and had left uh, an MLM um, and was talking about the experience that she'd had. And she had been fairly high up in the the ranks. So she had a substantial, the people who you've recruited underneath you are called your downline. She had a substantial downline. Mm. Um, And she was making good money, Mm. really good money. Mm. She named a figure, and I'm like, really good money. Mm. Um, and, you know, was one of the people that was going around to seminars and speaking. And this interview with her was fascinating because one of the things that she said was, well, I would give up sales always. I would pass them on mm. to my downline. I had potential clients, and I would pass them on to my downline mm. because I, like, it was what mattered to me was giving them Hmm. the business and getting them started and the way I thought about it was I was I was kind of helping out 
you know, it's like a friendship economy and a gift mm-hmm. economy. I was helping them out. And I did not think about it as something where I would make more money if I passed sales to my downline, all, even though but she would. structurally yeah. that seems like it has to be yes, true. That, that's, that's precisely how it works. And, but that's not how she described it. Yeah. And I mean, I thought this was like really fascinating. And the yeah. interviewer, the person who was speaking... Yeah said like, well, but these are people who in a normal business situation mm. would be your competitors, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 and yeah, she said, yes. well, yes, but this is not a normal yes. business situation. Yes. yes. But I mean, that is how some of the, some of the kind of like self-help literature works. It's, mm. and, it, and it says, and, and the story of capitalism is that those two things aren't, aren't ethically in conflict. Mm. That you, you accumulate more wealth for yourself while helping because those we're all below you. It together. Because we're yes. all in it together and you are, as you get rich, um, you know, and, and as you, as you, um, and it's not just some of the ones that we may have kind of been talking about or alluding to, but I'm thinking of others as well. Some of the, the more recent corporate feminist mm-hmm. self-help takes, yeah. um, you you assist other women, even though you might be at the top making a ton of money and exploiting, in our terms, in our Marxist terms, exploiting <laughs> labor below you. According to that philosophy... You just need to lean in, Hannah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, I have been leaning, and it's not working because my table is literally in a different room. I'm in the shared office down the hall. I lean and lean. No one cares. My office mates like get off my table. Yeah, <laughs> I need that space. That's but, a mark. But, but again, it's that you know you you said you used the example, Katie, of the 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 interview with someone who makes makes good money. That's Maybe. the yeah. But, but it fell apart. But that's again that's another connection to the self help, right? Like we yeah. are, we can all point to examples of people who have made it. Yeah. And you need those people because if you didn't have them, none of us would buy the myth that we can all make it. No. The logic of that sustains the self-help industry, the logic that sustains the pyramid industry, the logic that sustains MLM is all the same. And it's ultimately the logic of capitalism yeah. that we can all get there, that there is a utopia where we can all be a more perfect version of ourselves at individual level to national level like you know this this was this was you know Barack Obama's take of more perfect union right that mm-hmm. that we can we can always be constantly perfecting ourselves um yeah and where you have where you have the the government and the state legislating yeah. between the differences between mm. these different types of organizations mm. between what's legal and what's illegal i mean foucault talks about the state as facilitating capitalism yeah. and mm. facilitating capitalism so that it steps in so that when capitalism in the because a ponzi scheme fundamentally is bad for capitalism yeah. in yeah. the short term yeah. it's it generates lots of profit but in the medium term, I mean, they fall apart pretty quickly. Yeah. And that's really bad for capitalism. So the point of the state is to, to differentiate between, you know, a legal MLM is providing products. You know, and Tupperware lasts it. forever. Yes. Yes. Doesn't leak. Like, yeah. I have Tupperware yeah. from before I was born yeah. here that has yeah. migrated from California, yeah. and I love it. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. I am not sponsored. 
I am not afraid of Tupperware. <laughs> but like, but the product, right? The, there is a product, and yeah. so okay, yeah. in a capitalist, that's legal. Yes, makes sense, right? Yes. But it and it's the state's job to judge how we keep capitalism going yeah. as well as possible, and to to outlaw the kind of wild west tactics mm. that are f- ultimately worse for capitalism that's the kind of so here's my question is granted the product that is being sold is that that particular if it's tupperware let we can use tupperware as an example we can use other examples but yeah but Avon whether skin it's so a, soft yeah, is whether an excellent mid repellent skin so soft yes right like this well, <laughs> so is it is the, it seems to me that regardless of the quality of the product or the value of the product, the relationship between buyer and seller is different if it is through Tupperware or Avon or Amway as opposed to if I go to you know Tesco or Walmart and buy it. I think that capitalism is working differently and the, the motivations of the seller and often the motivations of the buyer is mm-hmm. quite different. So in, within my family, I know for a fact that there are members of, our fam- of my family who are buying MLM products because there's a family member who's starting it yes. up. Yes. yes. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I've done it. And you wouldn't do that with You're supporting Walmart. your cousin. You're yes. supporting your yeah. aunt. You're supporting yeah. your nephew. And yes, you get something, but you could have got something that is equally useful, perhaps if you went to Walmart. Yeah. And it's it it the reason why for me this this is more insidious is it is th- that affective relationship between you and your family is being hijacked here. Well it's interesting. I mean so that's that's an interesting way to put it because like it, in certain in some of these companies like the origin of the products themselves and uh, you know I've spent a little bit of time kind of digging around mm. and seeing what mm-hmm. I can find about, you know, how transparent are mm. certain companies mm-hmm. about the structure of their practices, yeah. about their business, and about the the kind of practicalities of handling mm. of the product, yeah. where it comes from, yeah. where it's sourced or how it's yeah. sourced, even broadly speaking, yeah. it, how to return it if it's defective exactly. when yeah. you get it. Yeah. Like these kinds of questions. Mm. And just to see like how transparent are these mm. companies, because that to me seems like, I mean, I'm, I'm worried. I'm bothered mm. Mm. when they don't tell me. Yeah. I'm bothered when Walmart doesn't yeah, tell me. I'm bothered when yeah. Tesco doesn't tell yeah. me. Right. But I think about it a little bit differently because yes. I expect them not exactly. to tell me mm-hmm. and I buy a generic, whatever Tesco brand, something, and it's different the next time and it's different the next time mm. and I'm like yeah they're sourcing it from someplace different of course they are mm. right but because there's that personal element mm. I'm kind of like no because where's this coming from and yeah. are you you know mm. are you leveraging that personal element in and order to sell me a product I, I that you're not being transparent with me about and I think there's a there's a similar argument maybe I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here but I think there's a similar argu- argument to be made about the buy local movement, mm. right? The, 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 you, I, you see this, this is, it's become a meme, right? Like if you, if you spend a pound in your local shop, then you are spending for, you're paying for someone's music tuition or you're paying for someone's kid's school 
like school bags or whatever if you're buying it from tesco you're you're put giving another pound to tesco ceo yeah now factually that may well be true it may not be i'm i'm also clearly paying for the the you know kids of the people who work at tesco yeah 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 but what what bothers me is that affective connection that i might feel with people in my locality yeah are so clearly being exploited in 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 defense in in support of a of a capitalist structure mm-hmm. yeah because you're still buying stuff. i'm still buying stuff and it's still it's still a a transaction and whether it's a ultimately to state the blindingly obvious buying something in a local local shop is is not a a, a, a radical anti-capitalist gesture it's just buying it's local. just buying local yeah. you can buy local if you want to that's absolutely fine and there may well be legitimate reasons for buying local but yeah, it's but still it's not, yes. yes, exactly. And I think MLM is doing something similar, or, or something similar is happening. But you imagine you're bypassing you're exactly, a kind of corporate structure. Exactly. Because you're buying... From your, your aunt, or your sister, right, or whatever. whatever. And because it doesn't come with a big label, and a, and a shop front, and all of those things. Of course, the irony is... Not in every case by any means, but in many cases, if it did come with a shop front, then your your aunt or your sister would have would maybe get minimum wage work pay or you know if they decide, leave or if they decided to work there. Yes, though. I yeah. mean because that's the other thing that I think about here, and I think about the kind of structure. You know, and part of this is about a way of understanding the like kind of family structure within the community yeah. structure. Um, but part of it is also. Um, that you can imagine a person who feels drawn to a kind of entrepreneurial opportunity Mm -hmm. but not to a minimum wage job or even if the minimum wage was a living wage. Yes. (laughs) Well, that was so hard to say. Why is that so hard to say? Even if the minimum wage was a living wage... Um, and there was care, and there was, you know, paid leave, and there were all of these things that would be humane and responsible. And, and th- this is, there's absolutely no way to, to be able to delineate this. Mm-mm. But to what extent is the person who is, you know, using their own agency to say, I don't want that living wage job. Mm-hmm. Because I'm I'm more interested in, in in being able to do this in my own time and being flexible or whatever. Yeah. To what extent are they buying into the promise of wealth that live, the living wage will never provide? That's the question. That's the question, right? That's so the like, question. so uh, uh, around the world, not everybody by any means, but so many people, so many taxi drivers who work for Uber instead of potentially working for a company where they might be employees will say, I don't want to be an employee. I want the flexibility. Like yeah. you, you, it is possible to have the flexibility and, and work as rights at the same time. You, sh- you that, that should be possible. That would take organizing, wouldn't it? Exactly. Mm. Well, also, you, you, yes. call it, you call it the boring 
like the boring framework and structure. <laughs> yeah. The boring uh, utopia. Utopia. <laughs> but this is the difference between individual utopia and collective utopia, right? Yeah. They're and they're fundamentally not the same. Yeah. So where the the capitalist kind of hero's journey is everyone's individual individual utopic self at the end all living together individually in like hermetically sealed houses with infinite wealth with infinite yeah. wealth infinite resources and without any without any theorizing about the relationships between them because mm-hmm. those are secondary and unimportant according to the story the myth of capitalism the extension then is the utopian kind of world is all those individuals and that's the utopian state or that's the utopian world you know and we can use and there's lots of like techno utopian capitalists who talk about climate change as being you know we can solve it using technological advancement and we we don't we don't have to sacrifice profit in order to to create a more sustainable you know capitalism moves towards a sort of utopic sustainable globe in which all of us are infinitely wealthy but individuals but it the alternative mm. is mundane and boring, mm. not exciting, and very difficult. Because yes. it means that you have to sit around and talk to other people. Yes. And you have to organize with yeah. them, mm-hmm. and you have to compromise with them, and you have to discuss things like values. Mm. And you have to do mundane work, like go door to door. You have to put together pamphlets. You have to do a bunch of research. You have to get... It's, it's, and it is. It's... It's dull. Well, I, I don't mean that the work of doing those things because that that is actually the kind of labor that you do in these in these in these kinds yeah, of companies yeah, yeah. in the multi level market. I mean, yeah. the people who I know who have done this kind of work work hard. Yeah. Well, so this they is, work hard. What, what's fascinating structurally the 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 labor that is involved in having a successful multi level marketing business. Yeah is very similar to the kind of work you have to do if you're a trade union activist. Yes. yes. It's very similar if you ha- of the kind of work you have to do if you're a political activist. Yes, yeah, that's right. Now, the difference isn't in the labor. The difference is in the politics. Yeah. And if I, if I am a trade union activist, I go door to door. I speak to the, the workers on my shop floor and I, I organize them. And I organize them, us, into a collective so that we can all fight for our rights together. Mm-hmm. In, in the, ultimately, in the utopian, perhaps utopian help, that as a group, as a class, we can get to somewhere better. Yeah. When I'm a multi-level marketing agent, I am doing exactly the same kind of work going from door to door talking to people in the hope in the utopian hope that I can shape myself and maybe my clients as individuals into mm-hmm. a better version of ourselves as individuals yeah so the difference here is not you know so often people will talk about the difference between like left and right and kind of mm. Uh, terms of optimism, right? That mm-hmm. the left is optimistic about the possible future, and that the right is nostalgic yeah. for a past yeah. bygone. But actually, what you're saying is like the political difference here is not so much that kind of framing yeah. of left and right, yeah. but rather a difference between a kind of collectivism and a kind of individualism. I think so. I yeah. think so. And the the 
where this then goes the the really disturbing scary place this this line of thinking could end up is is this if if we are right in thinking of this capitalist utopia as a shaping of the and and improving of the individual to the the best most uh most successful version of possible then is that sort of inherently fascistic that's a question isn't it is is the capitalist utopia always fascistic and i think it is Agamben would say yes Mm. Agamben yes Agamben would say yes I mean, can I mention a specific text here because this is a published book and I'm going to speak about this book because I think it's interesting in an historical context. Um, And so this is um, a book called Compassionate Capitalism, People Helping uh, People Help Themselves by uh, Rich DeVos and one of the founders of of Amway. Um, And... One of the things that I think is so fascinating about this text is that it frames a kind of ideal capitalism in terms of uh, friendship and caring for others and the care for others, right? Which seems to, it seems to get us out of this bind of the individual and the collective and, and rather suggest that capitalism just is about the care for others. So it contains lines... Without capitalism, there could be no compassion. I will be telling the stories of compassionate individuals and compassionate corporations wherever they find them. Um, But Amway and Amway's global network of independent distributors are kind of all over and talks about kind of the the global spread of compassionate capitalism, uh, specifically linked in this case to Amway, but also historically linked to the end of the Cold War. And what's sort of interesting about this text for me is that this way of framing um, in relation to a particular company, uh, this idea of capitalism as somehow built on friendship and relationships among people and kind of passing it on or, or helping other people or being kind of um, friendship. It's, it's tied to a specific point in time where this kind of triumphalism of, mm-hmm. of Western capitalism is framed clearly as a, as a failure of global, global communism, which now I think looks silly, mm-hmm. I, I think, but... At the time, it mm. seemed convincing to people. Mm. And what, what do you think about this kind of framework as, as kind of it imagines itself as a challenge to the individualist idea of capitalism that we've just been describing, where it's all about individual betterment versus collective, collective improvement? Rich DeVos seems to think it's both. I think it's interesting how in very different contexts how different people on who would broadly describe themselves as conservative have put the word compassion with the word conservatism Mm. so Mm -hmm. the conservative party in Britain has at various points in its time in its life decided to rebrand itself as compassionate conservatives Mm. and I mean Part of me, it's a cynical, illiterative PR thing where like it just sounds good in the way compassionate capitalist sounds good, compassionate conservatism sounds good. But, <laughs> but I think it is, to be fair, I think that having not read this book, so you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. 
my my sense is that the conservative reading of this would be to say a utopia of lots of individuals is the same as a collective utopia and i don't think that is true okay so a utopia which is structured as structured towards the improvement of all of us as individuals is not the same as a utopia that is structured towards the improvement of us as a collective so what is specifically the difference between those two because this is this and this goes back to kind of my my interest in in the sci-fi and mm. in butler because butler mm. takes some of these ideas which seem to be written by maybe not by rich devos mm. specifically mm. but by people mm. who are ideologically aligned with um, in some ways with this text with a capitalist mm. Uh, outlook explicitly and ter- seems to turn them to other means hmm. and even as she seems aware of that political difference I'm not sure what what we ought to make of her use of them in this way and if we're maybe not myself and not just interested in kind of trying to figure out Octavia Butler but more broadly what's the difference if hmm. the form is so similar so have you read um, Ursula Le Guin's *The Dispossessed*? Mm. I think she sets it up really interestingly because she deal she has a, a main character, but the story isn't really about the main character on his own, and she creates these two societies: one in a very an anarchic society in a very harsh environment, and a capitalist society in an extremely kind of wealthy, rich environment. Mm-hmm. And it's all it and it's all academics, which mm. I love. <laughs> and so they're all academics that this and this character is a scientist. And he's a physicist, and has solved a kind of a a, a core philosoph- like theoretical physics problem mm. having to do with time. Mm. And so he gets, he's brought from his home planet, Mm. or it's a moon, an Mm. anarchic moon, um, down to the universities Mm. on the main planet. Mm. Um, And he's always wanted to visit because they have all these facilities and they have all this this wealth that is specific. And the facilities and resources are part of capital, the capitalism Mm. of the planet. Like they only exist because of the process of profit generation and the way that mm-hmm. capital exists yeah. so you can only really have super nice things in this particular the way that the the system is framed and designed yeah. but when he gets there the whole and he he kind of idolizes the technology and he idolizes the resources like if, if we had these resources in our moon what could we do and the there's a sort of backstory about his family and about his friends and his um basically like communist student organization mm-hmm. when he's a student mm-hmm. and um, interactions with supervisors and things and, and um, the way that labor gets done. And he realizes when he gets to the planet where all of this kind of wealth is, mm-hmm. that it's a, everything is designed for individuals. So mm-hmm. it's individual competition. It's individual mm-hmm. growth. It's individual protection and safety of the individual. And so... And... What he sees is potential, but no no ability to kind of think about the collective mm-hmm. and ends up back on his moon. Mm-hmm. And this is a terrible, terrible kind of synopsis of this book. Go read Ursula Le Guin. Go read Ursula Le Guin. <laughs> but it's, it is essentially the, the kind of limits of both. 
it shows the mm-hmm. limits of of both ways of thinking, but it's a really detailed kind of picture mm-hmm. of, of anarchism and Marxism come to life that I think mm-hmm. is very accurate. And ultimately what you end up with is that's where you want to live. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, because in the collective, what's possible is something different and distinct mm-hmm. that is ultimately that mm-hmm. that utopic individual self is made more whole mm. by recognizing its position in relation to the people that you love around you and to extend that love to people that you don't know. Mm. And so the, in a sense, it's the kind of the logical end point that capitalism is unable to deliver on. That because of the structural process. analysis yeah. that would make that. Yeah. In the kind of understanding yeah. the structure that would make that possible. In yeah. a very simple, simplistic way, I, I think of it as the difference between uh, anarchism as a political movement and right-wing libertarianism as a political movement. Mm -hmm. You know, they're both anti-state. They're both anti-structure in some way. But the the huge... They they occupy almost sort of polar opposites on the the political spectrum. And partly it is what is your base unit of measurement, as it were. Is it the individual as, as the soul as the, the, the ultimate uh, the ultimate form of subjecthood, the ultimate where rights and respons- responsibilities reside, is that is, is it the individual or is it the collective? Is it class or, or the individual for me? But it's also about the identification of, what, of resources, isn't it? Hmm. Because, you know, and I'm thinking back to my other, my other uh, sci-fi <laughs> touchstone, which is Star Trek. Hmm. And what makes Star Trek possible as a kind of utopian... Uh, liberal utopian mm. vision mm. is the replicator, the holodeck, mm. the invention mm. of something that feels like something yeah. out of nothing, yeah. and 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 something that tastes like something out of nothing, yeah. Yeah. and something that you know, mm. um, and that you can do that kind of indefinitely overshadows mm. the fact that you know, or makes it easy to look away from the fact that so often in Star Trek. Mm. Um, bad things happen. Species mm-hmm. are eradicated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that actually there's lots of fighting over resources mm-hmm. in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, but we imagine that this kind of like ingenuity and te- kind of tech facility with like technical facility will kind of get us out of what is, remains a finite yes. limited resource. So, um, to use another side for example, Matrix is an interesting example here mm. because the the bad guys in the film, as in the com- the computers, the machines, part of the reason why they are bad is their understanding of human beings as a virus, as a collective, mm-hmm. and the what what is the on the good side, what is the force that wins out against that collective reading of humanity mm-hmm. is Neo, is, is the one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's just one example, you know, you can think of, you can think of the Borg as, as, a, as a similar example of sort of the, the, the demonization of the collective as the monstrous. Yep, absolutely. Uh, as opposed to the, the heroic individual. So that heroic individual you're suggesting is always fascistic. Yes. So what makes that person fascistic? Or that model, makes that narrative structure fascistic? Is it the molding of the individual? It, 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 it is a definition. It, it's sort of fascistic in, in rhetorical terms. Yeah. As opposed to fascist. 
if there's a difference between fascistic and fascist. I mean, it also sets you up to kind of emulate a one, right? Yeah, the, yeah, the, the messianic, the ubermensch, the, the messianic yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, figure and yes. uh, kind of autocrat yeah, yeah. are maybe closer together yes. than yeah. we want yeah. to think. Yes, and, <laughs> and perhaps the way the 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 illusion, the promise, the differ, always deferred promise that capitalism structured is that that we can all be that ubermensch. We can yeah. all be that sculpted, perfect individual. Hmm. We don't have time to talk about Spectres of March, but I'm like, yeah. <laughs> there's another, <laughs> there's another conversation here that goes a different direction. Yeah. Part three. But no, I don't know. <laughs> um, let us know if any of this helped. Let us know if you disagree with us. Um, keep listening for future thoughts. Thank you so much, Katie, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's it's been a real pleasure to have this conversation with both of you and. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, and we hope you'll come back. I'd love to. I'd love to. And Hannah and I will see you next week. Bye. 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 We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been the State of the Theory. Thank you. Well, 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 well,